Who is going to, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, for it is better if, it is God's if it is God's will to suffer, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to, bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being, After made, being alive, made alive, he went and made, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only, in a it few, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal, Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Therefore, Therefore, since Christ, since Christ suffered, in his, suffered in his body, arm yourself, arm yourself also with the same, with attitude, with the same attitude, because whoever, because whoever suffers, in the, suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised, they are surprised that, you do, that you do not join them in their, them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have, but they'll to, have, have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the, this reason, is the reason the gospel is preached, even to those, even to those who are now dead, so that they might, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all, the end of all things, things is near. Therefore, be, therefore alert, be alert and sober of mind that you may pray. Above all, above all, love each other, love each other deeply, deeply, because love because covers, love covers a, multitude a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, if anyone speaks they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Dear friends, dear do not friends, be do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something, as though something strange, strange were happening to you. But rejoice, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may, so that you may be overjoyed more and His glory is revealed. If you are insulted, you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. For, the spirit, For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, if you suffer it, should not it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if However, you, if you suffer, suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
for it is time for, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Um, and there's a lot in there that we won't be covering today um, that's complicated and hard, but hopefully you sensed a bit of a theme as we went through uh, what Carol talked about. Uh, for some reason, people are always really curious about what I was like as a teenager. Um, I don't know why. Um, it's possibly some of the behaviours and patterns of things I do now. People are like, I wonder what she was like as a teenager. Well, <laughs> Elliot's like, I definitely didn't grow. I just had a, a moment. I haven't actually grown since I was in year seven, in case you're wondering. Um, so I was pretty much like this as a teenager. But in terms of my behaviours and my patterns and the, the things that I said, um, I actually went through my rebellious phase when I was in primary school. Uh, and so I came into high school and um, I loved Jesus and I wanted people to know that and so I was quite vocal about it. Uh, but I actually got bullied at high school for being a Christian. Um, I went to a Christian high school, but that didn't seem to make much of a difference uh, the minute I was involved in a youth group or I shared publicly about my faith, particularly if I spoke or sang in chapel, uh, I knew going into the lessons for the rest of that day that no one would sit with me uh, and that anything that was said to me would be to mock me based on what I had said um, or done in chapel. So for me, high school was a bit of a tumultuous time and I saw a few nods when I was saying that, so perhaps I'm not alone in that experience. When I look back on it now, 17 years later, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But 13-year-old me really struggled with being excluded and isolated from all of my peers at school. Uh, the schoolyard can be a really nasty place. Um, so if you've had a similar experience, you probably know what it feels like to be alienated. Uh, it isn't fun. Eventually, I found my people. Um, there were actually a few other Christians at my Christian school, uh, and that helped. Uh, but then our group started to be mocked instead and we got called names as a collective rather than as individuals. Um, one of the names that the group uh, that I was a part of got called was the Pewers. They labelled us the Pewers because apparently we never did anything impure. Um, and we actually started wearing that as a badge of pride because if you read through the Bible, that's kind of a good thing to be living a holy life. Uh, but we were still excluded from most things, uh, never invited to social events, um, just kind of exiled from the general population of the school. Uh, now, I don't know if you know this about me um, and if you've uh, experienced this in conversation with me, but I have a fairly fiery temper if you get me going. Uh, and so there were times at school where people would insult me uh, and I was very quick to turn around and fight back. Um, my goal was to at least match the insult, if not one up the insult. That was always kind of the goal, to put someone in their place and to stop them insulting me. Um, so during that time, my vocabulary of words that I wouldn't say in a sermon grew. Uh, but did I? Did I grow in that season? I've been reflecting on it and wondering whether if I had have treated these people with love uh, rather than hatred and insult, whether things would have been different. There's a really good chance that they wouldn't have been different at all. Uh, perhaps that they would have even insulted or mocked me more. Uh, 
but I wonder if I would have been different, um, if I would have changed and if my character would have grown during that time if I chose to love rather than to let the hate grow unchecked. Something to think about. We're in a series at the moment called Living Different. Um, we've been in this series for a few weeks, looking at the, the letter of one Peter. Now, Peter was writing to Christians who found themselves as strangers and exiles in the first century, living under the oppressive Roman Empire. And they were on the margins of society, facing slander and abuse as well. Peter's hope for these believers is that they would be true to their identity in Jesus, that they would have flourishing relationships both inside and outside the church, that Jesus would be their model for the way they live, and that they would cling to the future hope of the coming kingdom where everything would be made right. So in our passage today, Peter opens by asking a question, and he says this, who's going to harm you for doing good? And his answer is, probably someone at some point. Peter's call for the believers was, despite the suffering, the hostility, and the persecution they were facing for doing good, to continue to outlove the empire, the way Mark so helpfully put it for us a few weeks ago, to love so well that it would, in fact, likely cause more suffering that they could then respond to with more love. Here, Peter is writing to encourage those suffering for bearing Jesus' name and for doing good, to encourage them to persevere, to keep at it, not to retaliate, not to treat others badly. The churches who received Peter's letter knew what it meant to be living on the margins of society. The whole letter is full of references to suffering, rejection, and persecution, and they're the themes that came out in the reading this morning. But it's also full of references to hope. The perspective of Christian hope has the ability to change everything. And in this case, Peter's point is that hope should change our perspective on suffering and how we respond to it. What's really crazy to me is with all the persecution, the hardship, the Christians being killed during this period, that the Christian movement didn't die out. But the fact that we aren't currently living under the Roman Empire should be a pretty good indication that it didn't last. Eventually, the Roman Empire crumbled, and yet we're sitting here today because the Christian movement has outlasted the Roman Empire and every empire since. The movement of Jesus' followers outlived the Roman Empire and all other empires, not because it fought back and won. The church didn't fight back. The reason it's outlasted every other empire is because it outloved the empire. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. What does it look like for us to outlove the empire in the face of pushback, in the face of insult and suffering? Now, it would be a little bit outrageous if we directly compared my experience of um, being insulted at school for being a Christian with the persecution that the early church faced. They're quite different things, and we live in vastly different worlds. For example, the Christians Peter was writing to were not living in a country that was founded on Christian values. They were not living in a country for, where for a long time going to church was just part of the normal Sunday routine. And they weren't living in a place where Christians had been major power brokers and influencers in society. The Christians Peter was writing to were a minority group with no political power, who caused a few problems for the Roman Empire and also the other people living in the region. 
So when people converted to Christianity at this time, they stopped participating in certain parts of civil and daily life. For example, they stopped going to events where people were killed for entertainment because they believed that human life was valuable. They stopped worshipping Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire, and they stopped offering sacrifices to other gods. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but if you live in a majority pagan community in the Roman Empire, this is a problem. Because not worshipping Caesar makes Rome angry and probably draws unwanted attention on your community. And not sacrificing to the gods makes the gods angry. In the pagan worldview, this might mean no rain or a bad harvest. So our worlds are vastly different. But still, we can probably get a sense from reading through the passage this morning that there are some similarities between our situation and theirs. They were treated badly for bearing the name of Jesus and for doing good. They were slandered for being Jesus followers, which was my experience at high school. So there are some things that we can learn from the way that Peter encourages and challenges them to continue to do good and have hope despite the suffering they endured. What isn't particularly encouraging about Peter's letter is his insistence that Christians will suffer. He doesn't seem to say that there's much way to get around that. Uh, We suffer because Jesus suffers seems to be the logic. And this isn't just the message of Peter um, and Paul as well in certain places in his letters, but of Jesus himself. Jesus walked around saying things like, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Now, no one's making that their life verse and getting that tattooed on their forearm. It's not a very happy, positive message. Jesus says, if the world hated you, bear in mind that it hated me first. We share in Jesus' suffering, and we suffer for bearing his name. He said it would happen. And Peter writes in 4.12, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice in suffering the way Christ did. It's pretty crazy. And Peter's saying we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes our way. We shouldn't back away from it. In fact, we should rejoice that we get to share in Jesus' suffering and persevere because we have hope that Jesus is victorious and that he's coming back to renew all things. Uh, but before we talk about how we're going to respond to this suffering and what we do with it, we probably need to be clear on what the suffering isn't. Because if we get this wrong, we might think that Peter is asking us to rejoice in all kinds of suffering, uh, which is not his point. So here's a couple of things that the suffering is not. The suffering is not the kind of suffering that we unpacked during our lament series, uh, the last series that we did. He's not talking about grief or domestic abuse. He's not talking about disease and sickness, systemic oppression, or being the victim of a violent crime. Um, And this is a really important point. These kinds of sufferings are talked about in other places in the Bible, but Peter is not asking us to rejoice in those sufferings here. Um, He's asking us to rejoice in a particular kind of suffering, which we'll talk about. Uh, The other thing that this suffering is not, uh, the suffering is not because I was a jerk to someone and they reacted badly. It's not how this works. We can't be horrible to people in the name of Jesus and when they retaliate, be like, I'm suffering for Christ. No. That's not how this works. That's doing the exact opposite of loving or doing good. Uh, As Elliot put it this week, it's the consequence of being an idiot. It's cause and effect. If you're horrible to someone and they're horrible back, cause and effect. So we cannot say 
to someone something that's awful in Jesus' name and stand here and be like, well, I'm suffering for Jesus when they respond badly. Just no, like no. Uh, So hopefully that one's clear. And the third thing that the suffering is not is Christians losing their power and influence in the West. So the church losing its seat of power is not suffering. Uh, But the way Christians have been responding to this has been fascinating. Many Christians are fighting hard to be the ones calling the shots, like somehow it's a good thing when the church is in control. But if we survey church history, we see that the church has never actually done well when it's been in power. The church has done its best work from the margins when it's been loving people well and doing good. So in this case, stepping aside from privilege or being stepped aside from privilege is not suffering. Uh, We need to stop fighting for the majority voice and outlove the empire from wherever we find ourselves. Miroslav Volf, uh, he's been quoted a few times during the series, is an amazing thinker and writer on what it looks like to have faith in in the public square. And he puts it like this. He says, the early church communities were not major social players at all. They were slandered, they were discriminated against, they were even persecuted minorities. He says, at most, they were a thorn in the flesh of society Uh, because they did all the things I talked about. They didn't get involved in all sorts of civil and daily life and they loved their neighbour and even their enemies. Pretty weird. He goes on, we in the West, on the other hand, are alarmed at our diminishing influence. In the midst of fierce opposition, the early Christians celebrated and embodied a way of life, life that they experienced as a gift from God and that was modelled on the life of Jesus. But in contrast, living in freedom and economic prosperity, many churches in the West bemoan the loss of influence and they scheme to regain it by acquiring political power. Christian communities need to become more comfortable with being one of many players so that wherever they find themselves, whether on the margins or in the centre or anywhere in between, they can promote human flourishing and the common good. In other words, our loss of status is not suffering. The margins or the fringes of society is actually an okay place for the church to be. It's where Christians in the past have actually done their best work. And we are called not to fight for power or to fight to be the empire, but to do good, to outlove the empire in whatever position we find ourselves in in society. So that's what suffering is not. Um, And I've alluded to it a fair bit, but the suffering that Peter is talking about seems to be more specifically verbal abuse, shaming and slander, directly linked to being a follower of Jesus and doing good. He says things like, do not fear their threats or those who speak maliciously against you or slander or heap abuse on you or insult you. And certainly for some people, this would have meant death and it would have ended in martyrdom um, and we shouldn't overlook that. But Peter seems to specifically be addressing insult and slander here. This is the kind of public shaming that happens when the world tries to get Christians to conform to the values and behaviours of the wider society. So this kind of insult doesn't come because we are mean or bemeaning to the wider culture. It comes because we stand out to the culture around us by the way we love and the way we do good. Peter says that this insult comes when we have outloved the empire to the point where it is so noticeable and makes people so uncomfortable that their response is to push back. Peter stresses he is talking about suffering that arises from our connection to Jesus and from doing good in his name. 
So this isn't just about keeping a list of Christian rules or working our way into heaven or keeping out of trouble. The idea of doing good is so much richer than that. It means acting with extravagant goodness, love, kindness, hospitality and generosity towards our family, our neighbours and even our enemies, even if we are insulted for it. What's interesting in all of this is that Peter doesn't offer any sympathy to people who are suffering in this way. He doesn't write, I'm really sorry to hear that you're suffering. I hope that you can work through it. And he doesn't act like it's a weird thing either. He doesn't say, I can't believe the way people are talking about Christians. It's outrageous. We need a campaign. Peter recognises that people, the people of God have always experienced hostility in some form or another. Jesus himself was marginalised and faced the ultimate rejection on the cross. And this is the one that we follow. So why would we expect anything different? Instead, Peter calls his readers to point to Jesus in their life and their words to do good, to outlove the empire as they endure oppression, injustice and suffering. Now we might sit here and say this is all well and good for Christians back then who were facing this kind of suffering. Uh, But one of the questions that's really struck me this week um, as I've been reading and as I've been preparing is this. What if we aren't, or what if I'm not more personally, experiencing this kind of suffering? What if I'm not experiencing this kind of suffering? Uh, There could be any number of reasons for this. Um, One of the reasons could be because not everyone in Australia is openly hostile towards Christianity. Uh, It might head that way. Um, We see trends sort of towards that, but it's currently not the case. And so it's probably fair to say that in Australia, it's currently pretty unusual to receive personal hostility for being a Christian. What we see more is hostility towards the church um, and towards Christianity as an established religion. Um, And sometimes with good reason, like we probably need to own that the church hasn't always done the right thing. Uh, And so the fact that there is hostility towards the church in our culture is not a surprise. Uh, So it could be because our culture doesn't really care. So long as we keep our faith to ourselves and don't abuse anyone with our power, they're pretty happy to let us be. But I still think it's worth asking ourselves some questions. Peter says that the suffering is due to doing good and because we are associated with the name of Jesus, which means we really can't keep it to ourselves or keep it hidden. So... Is our lack of suffering because we aren't doing good? Or is it because we aren't doing more good than anyone else? We aren't outloving the empire. Uh, a few weeks ago, Mark framed really helpfully for us this idea of rejecting culture and critically embracing, uncritically embracing culture. Uh, and so when it comes to rejecting culture, he said there are two ways that we can go about this. We either insert ourselves into the world in an inappropriate way that ends up being violent and hostile towards culture. Uh, And what comes to mind for me uh, when I hear that is uh, Christian protesters with turn or burn signs, like turn from your sin or uh, burn in hell. That's what comes to mind for me when we um, force ourselves and our opinion onto culture in a violent and hostile way. He said the alternative way to reject culture is to withdraw from it completely to put ourselves in a Christian bubble. And then when it comes to uncritically embracing culture, will we end up looking exactly like the world around us? So if we're rejecting culture by removing ourselves from it, how can we love it? 
And if we're rejecting culture in a hostile or a violent way, then we definitely aren't loving it. And if we wholly embrace culture and don't look anything any different to it, how can we love in a way that makes Jesus known? So there has to be a third way, a way where we settle down, where we get involved in our communities, where where we seek the flourishing of the place we live. And in doing good, in seeking others' well-being, in outloving the empire, we may just find that we are insulted or treated poorly, that we end up suffering for doing good. But I was really struck this week by the fact that I've not experienced this kind of pushback for a while. Uh, And I'm a little bit grieved by it. We were praying this week, um, Elliot and Justine and I, uh, and they were praying for me in my preparation, and I just had this moment of being really overwhelmed by the fact that I don't experience this. And there could be good reason for it. It could be because our culture doesn't care. But it's made me do some deep reflection and go, am I actually loving people well enough that I'm being noticed for it? Now, there may be no suffering that comes from that, but am I loving people well enough that it's being noticed? Which led to a second question, which is, am I actually in close enough proximity to people who don't know Jesus to love them well? Am I actually in close enough proximity? Um, It's been really challenging for me. And so while this letter is an encouragement to the people that Peter was writing to, he wants them to persevere through the sufferings and then to rejoice in their suffering, to cling to hope because Jesus is coming back to make all things right. This letter comes across to me more as a rebuke or a challenge, not because it's not an encouragement to people who are suffering, but I'm challenged because I don't know if I'm suffering for doing good and outloving the empire the way he's talking about. Now, I'm not going to go out and seek to suffer. That's not the point of this either. It's not like I'm, please, I want to suffer, God. Uh, But it is making me reflect and ask questions on whether I'm loving well enough to be noticed that suffering might even happen. So how are we going to respond to this challenge? Well, perhaps you are experiencing this kind of suffering in your world. Um, I don't know everyone's stories in the room intimately, Uh, So it may be that you do experience this kind of pushback and suffering for loving other people well. And Peter's message to you, if that's the case, is this. Keep doing good. If you're suffering, live like Jesus, do good. If you're despised, live like Jesus, do good. If you're insulted, live like Jesus, do good. If you're being shamed, live like Jesus, do good. This is Peter's message over and over. No matter the loss of reputation, the insult, the hostility, continue to outlove the empire. Do good, which will probably cause more suffering, which should lead us to do more good as we seek to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But if you're anything like me and you're sitting here wondering, am I um, outloving the empire? Am I doing good to the point where people might actually take notice? Uh, I think this letter offers us a few ideas of how we can start to love more and to love well. So here are a few ideas uh, that the letter offers. So a little bit earlier than what we read today, uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, we read this. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Um, And using Jesus as an example, a little bit earlier in chapter 2, Peter says, when they held insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. So I think the first idea that this letter gives us is that we don't fight back, that we don't retaliate, uh, that we don't get defensive. 
this is a call to non-violence with both our actions and our words. Uh, there is such a thing as violent words, um, and I was pretty good at using them in high school. Now, you might think, I'm not a violent person, uh, and if that's you, that's awesome. Um, if you don't think you're a violent person, but we live in and are shaped by a culture where violence is the usual response to insults. You only need to look at behaviour on sporting fields or courts or the schoolyard or your response to people when they cut you off while you're driving. Now, maybe that's just me, maybe that's not you, uh, but if you've ever found words coming out of your mouth when someone cuts you off that aren't loving, I would say that that's a violent response. They may not hear it. We may think that our car is a safe bubble where uh, no one can see what's going on, um, but I'd say we probably need to rethink that a little. We live in a culture that says like for like, insult for insult. Uh, Tom Wright, who's one of my favourite theologians, he puts it this way. He says, here's the irony. Christians are supposed to stand out as distinctive, and when we do, we might be mocked or criticised, but when we're mocked or criticised, we're tempted to mock and criticise right back. And then we're no longer distinctive because we're behaving just like everyone else. The way of Jesus is a radical reorientation towards doing good and outloving the empire. When we are insulted or persecuted for doing good, we are not to retaliate or to try and get even. And so I wonder, where do you find yourself naturally inclined to want to retaliate? Uh, perhaps it's with siblings, with family, perhaps it is in the car, on the road, or on the court, uh, in the sport that you play. What would you need to shift in order to move towards not retaliating? Be a question to think about this week as you're driving around Adelaide, uh, one of the states where people don't indicate. Let's not talk about that. The second thing that I think this letter points out to us, uh, to teach us and show us how to love well, uh, is a list that we find in chapters four, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. And Peter lists, this way, uh, lists a number of ways for us to do good. He says things like this. He says, above all, love each other deeply. Offer hospitality without grumbling and serve others. So the second idea that Peter gives us is that we are to love deeply, to show hospitality and to serve, which seems pretty simple, except maybe not so simple in the face of insult. When people are rude to us, the last thing we feel like doing is going out of our way to love them, to show hospitality towards them and to serve them. And yet this seems to be at the very core of the good we are called to do that will possibly make us be noticed and will possibly cause more suffering. So what would it look like for you to love, to show hospitality and to serve in the face of insult and suffering? Big question. And the third thing I think this letter shows us, um, something we can read in, if you're following along, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, where Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. And people usually stop reading there and don't kind of read on because there's a full stop, it must end. Uh, but Peter actually goes on and he says, But do this with gentleness and respect. The third idea that Peter gives us is to speak with gentleness and respect. A little later in the letter, he says that we are to speak as if our words are the very words of God. What a challenge. To speak as if our words were the very words of God. I wonder if you think about the words that you've spoken over the last week uh, and if you could imagine God saying those to other people. 
um, certainly would take back a few of the things that I've said, I think. This is a matter of tone and of posture. There may be times and places to share with people in our world the hope we have in Jesus, or at least to engage in topics of faith in a public forum, which is great, but how are we going to approach these conversations? How are we going to approach them? And Peter says, with gentleness and respect, which means a commitment to not forcing our opinions on others, a commitment to not using battle or combative language. This isn't a fight. We aren't trying to win. It means being quick to apologise if we're heard badly. Uh, I think the Israel Folau uh, debacle is a great example of this. Whether you agree with what he said or not is not the point here. He was not heard well by our culture. And so if this happens, if we're not heard well, we need to be quick to apologise. And possibly the most difficult thing for us to do, we'll sometimes need to apologise even if the hurt or offence wasn't caused by us. It might mean, for example, that we sit with our Indigenous brothers and sisters and we apologise for the way that we, uh, our ancestors um, or people before us have treated them uh, and the uh, abuse and oppression that has happened over the last 200 years. Now, that might not have been us that did it, uh, but there is a place for us as Christians and us as the church to make an apology. And of course, all of this means that we'll speak out about injustice. Uh, Melinda has been telling me lots of amazing stories about her last two weeks, two trips to Canberra. What a jet setter. Um, the first week, let me get, try and get this right, was Baptist leaders speaking to politicians. And the second week, this last week, was women leaders from across all denominations or most denominations. Uh, and they were going to advocate to the politicians in Canberra on behalf of the church. Now, Melinda said that one of the reflections um, and observations for, from the people they were advocating to, uh, from the empire, you will, the government, if we can call the government the empire, uh, was surprised that they were advocating for someone else, not for themselves. This is doing good in Jesus' name. To speak with gentleness and respect in a non-combative way, but to speak on behalf of those who don't have a voice. And so this might be part of um, our speaking well. How do we speak up for those who don't have a voice? Uh, the same conversation Melinda and I were having, she made a, um, an interesting observation. We currently live um, and are in a position where the empire actually thinks that we underlove them. Whether rightly or wrongly, the empire thinks that we underlove them rather than outlove them. I think a lot of the slander that Christians face at the moment is because the empire thinks that the church isn't loving the way we say we do. Um, and sometimes that's an unfair assessment, but it does demand some reflection. Where have we underloved? Um, one example that's been coming to mind for me has come out of the inclusion workshop uh, that Meg spoke about before that we hosted here on Thursday night. One of the Baptist care staff told us this story about a program that they're facilitating with local churches where they invite people living with really serious mental health conditions that isolate them from community, a buddied up with someone from the church uh, in the hope that a friendship will form. So one church ran this program and they paired up 11 people living with serious mental health conditions with 11 people from a church. Apparently it's super awkward at first, kind of like an awkward first date where you, you know, haven't met the person beforehand. Uh, but eventually the friendships end up flourishing. And here's what I found interesting from that story. 
Not a single one of those people with mental health conditions ended up being re-hospitalised after they had one friend. All it took was one friend. Blows my mind. If we want to put a dollar figure on it, it saved the healthcare system over half a million dollars over a couple of years. It's crazy. All it took was one friend for these people not to be re-hospitalised. Which has caused me to ask a question this week. Why do we depend on government and non-government agencies to love people well? Why do we depend on agencies, carers, to help the people who are facing isolation and loneliness in our neighbourhoods? Throughout history, the church was the one who loved, who cared for the sick, the orphans, and invested in community relationships. And I think this is one of the places where the church has dropped the ball because we now defer people to paid agencies to love and to find friendships. Now, agencies totally have their place. Don't hear me uh, putting them down. But we now outsource our love and our responsibility to love our neighbours to agencies. Blows my mind. All it took was one person to befriend these people in order for them not to end up being re-hospitalised. What would it look like if we were to befriend someone who was isolated in our community. This isn't going to change overnight, but all it took was one friend. So what are the practices that we need to put in our lives to make this change? How are you going to outlove the empire this week? Could be super small. Who can you befriend? Who can you serve? Who can you be generous to? Who could you have a conversation with that you would normally walk straight past without talking to? Or really simply, who could you just not repay insult with insult, evil with evil? Peter concludes a section on suffering by saying this, So then, those who suffer according to God's will, that is, for doing good, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. He says, those who suffer... Trust in God, continue to do good. If you suffer, continue to do good. Let me pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for your word and the way that it encourages us, uh, but also challenges us. Uh, we don't want to be comfortable and we don't want to live lives um, that are meaningless. Uh, and if that means suffering for loving people well, um, we know it would be hard, but we're open to it. And so I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, all of who we are, um, to the people that you've placed in front of us to love. Show us who you want us to love. Lead us to them, whether it's our neighbours, um, whether it's the people we bump into in the shops, whoever it is this week, God, that you would um, be prompting us to love people well and that you would have us be open to that. Now we pray that you um, protect us in the times where we do face suffering for loving people well, uh, but God, don't let us be comfortable. We pray these things in your name. Amen.